the ushers are making their way up and down the aisle right now with Bibles. And I want to make sure that everybody got one of these maps. If you didn't get one of these colorful maps that was uh, handed out as you walked in, just raise your hand so that you make sure you get one of these because um, this is not an ad for Israel. This is part of our Bible study tonight. Uh, so if you didn't get one of these, make sure you raise your hand because you're going to want one of these uh, to follow along. And, and you'll notice that there's two of them. And I did that um, to serve you. I made one so that you could follow along easily in our study. That's the big one. And I made one that you could tuck into your Bible and just keep there uh, in the chapters that we're going to be studying tonight. And it should fit. In most Bibles, this fits right in there. And it will be uh, a constant visual aid for you. So, um, Make sure you have a Bible, make sure you have one of those maps, and we have three places to turn to tonight for our Bible study, so if you would open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11, and also to John chapter 10, and also Ephesians chapter 2. That's Joshua 11, John 10, Ephesians 2. And let's again just ask the Lord to speak to us tonight. Father, it's your word that can do all things. You said that without you, we can do nothing. And so we ask that tonight, Lord, as we hear the truth spoken to us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bear witness of it in our hearts And it would be applied to our lives in such an individual and such a powerful way that we'd find ourselves being transformed even as we hear it spoken. And so we give you place, Lord, to do your will in each one of our lives. And with expectant hearts, Lord, we hope in the power of your spirit to change us. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a small boat that made its way to the dock of a tiny Mexican village. And on the dock, there was an American tourist watching the boat come in. And as the boat came in and the fishermen got out with a small catch of very nice fish, the tourist asked him and he said, hey, those are nice fish. How long did it take you to catch those? And the fisherman said, not very long at all. I just went out, caught the fish, came back in. And so the tourist said, well, why didn't you stay out longer? You could have caught more. And he said, well, this is sufficient to meet the needs of my family. And so the tourist, curious, asked the fisherman, he said, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? And he said, I sleep in late. I play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a siesta with my wife. And at night, I go into the village and play guitar with my friends. I lead a full life. The tourist said, I have an MBA from Harvard University. I think I can help you. If you started a little bit earlier in the day, you could catch more fish. You could sell the extra fish, and in time, you could buy a bigger boat. If you kept it up, you could add a second boat, and then a third, and then a fourth, and pretty soon, you'd have a whole fleet of fishing ships. If you kept at it, after a while, you'd be able to build a processing plant right here in this area, And by that time, you'd be making so much money, you'd be able to relocate to Mexico City or L.A. and oversee the vast operation that you've built. And so the fisherman said, well, how long do you think something like that would take? And he said, oh, a good 20 to 25 years. 
And then the fisherman said, well, then what? He said, well, you'd make millions, and then you could retire. Move to a tiny village by the coast. Sleep in late. Play with your grandkids. And then in the afternoon, take a siesta with your wife, and at night, go into the village and play guitar with your friends. Maybe the NBA needed to learn from the fishermen, right? The reason I share that story is not to bring out the irony of educated stupidity, but rather because it illustrates the common quest of all of humanity, and that is the desire to live a full, rich, and abundant life. That's the desire that God has for his people. Jesus said that that was part of the reason why he came. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said this. He said that the thief does not come except to kill and to steal and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. His desire for his people is that we would live rich, full, and abundant lives. Now, there is a difference between what the world looks at and calls an abundant life and what God calls an abundant life. According to the world standard, abundant life is that which is material in nature and situational. That is, if you happen to be lucky enough to be one of the people that's healthy and wealthy and has a good outward circumstance and things, then the world looks on and says, well, that's an abundant life. But with God, it's not something that happens outwardly, but it's something that happens inwardly. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, Beware of covetousness, because the abundance of a man or woman's life does not lie in the abundance of the things that they possess. It isn't the things that we have, but it's something that God does inwardly. It's what Paul called, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, spiritual blessings. Things that God works into us on the inside. Things like wisdom and knowledge, the right kind of knowledge, discretion and good judgment, joyfulness and love that we can have for other people. And these are of greater value than the things that the world esteems and calls abundant life. And here's the reason why. Because if you have an abundant life by the world's standards and it lies in the circumstances of your life, then if you lose those circumstances or if life changes, then you also lose the abundant life. But if your abundant life lies in the things that God has sown and cultivated in your soul, then no matter where you are, you're going to thrive and be fruitful. If you took Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, and you removed him at the height of his kingdom from the throne in Jerusalem, and you placed him anywhere else on the planet, anywhere, he would have thrived and risen to an equivalent level where he was, because what he was was not time and chance, but rather it was something that God had worked into his heart. We see that principle played out clearly in the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. His father saw something in him. He's got the spirit of God in him, and and, and he was elevating him, preparing him to do great things. But his life was interrupted, and he found himself as a slave in Potiphar's house. And what happened? He became the chief in Potiphar's house. He thrived in a different environment. Pretty soon, he found himself in a prison. His situation changed again, and he found himself elevated in charge of the whole prison. And then, when the Pharaoh found out the gifts and the spirit that was in him... Joseph became the Lord, lowercase l, of all of Egypt. See, it wasn't about time and chance. 
wherever you are, if you've been blessed by God with the abundant life that Jesus gives, then wherever you are, you are going to live an abundant life. Because the blessing of God is inward, it's not outward, it's not situational. Now, this segment of the book of Joshua that we find ourselves in concerns the taking and the distribution of the territory that God had promised to Abraham over 400 years prior to this time. That's why it's called the promised land, because God promised to give it to them. For them, it was a physical land with physical boundaries, and it was subject to physical laws. They would inherit it, but there would be boundaries, because two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. And so they would inherit the promised land, but each tribe would receive an allotment, and there were borders, boundaries. There was limitations in it. Now, for us, you and I that are sitting here tonight, this distribution of the land, this inheritance of God's promised land is a type or an illustration of not physical land that you and I inherit from God, but rather the spiritual blessings that God works into our lives, spiritual territory that we obtain by capitalizing upon and appropriating the promises of God within our lives. And as we appropriate those promises and begin to experience his work within our lives, we gain spiritual territory, which then translates into the abundant life that Jesus spoke of that he desired to give to his people. Now, there's no limitations and boundaries as it concerns our inheritance of the promised land, the promised life that Jesus gives to us. As much of the land that there is, as much territory as can be taken by a believer in Jesus Christ, as much of that life as can be lived, we can have. You don't have to share it with someone else and decide who's going to get what attribute of God's goodness. But as much as you're willing to take or receive or obtain from him, you're entitled to have. And so this section of scripture teaches to us what it means for you and I to obtain the promised life, our inheritance, that which is left for us because Jesus said he wants to give us the promised life. How can we experience the most and the best of what Jesus gives to us? Now, what we understand is that there was an obstacle that kept them from receiving that promised land at first. There was an enemy that occupied the territory and they couldn't take the land and be fruitful in it until they also removed the enemy the corrupt and Christ-rejecting Canaanites. And they had to remove them because if they let them stay, then their corruption would also corrupt God's people and the land would not be fruitful. That's what God commanded through Moses. They must be removed in order for you to experience the fruit of the land. And that same obstacle exists for you and I. There is in our soul, if we're saved, territory to be taken, things that God wants to do. But there's an enemy that also occupies it. We find that when we first get saved, there's a battle that begins. The enemy that lies inside of us is none other than Mr. Flesh. Paul illustrated it with words greatly in Ephesians chapter 2. You should also have a finger there. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, talking about our experience in Christ, he says this. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Speaking of the moment of our salvation, he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He says that we were once in darkness and we were once subject to the prince of darkness, Satan himself. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. And so what Paul calls the enemies of the Christian, that which takes up the territory that keeps us from having abundant life, he calls those enemies the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Those things that drove us before we came to Christ keep us from experiencing the goodness and the good things that God wants to sow and work out in our lives. That is like this. The territory internally of a sound mind and good judgment was controlled by addiction to alcohol and drugs. Those things corrupt and keep you from having good judgment and making good decisions, and ultimately they take you down a path that leads to destruction. But once those enemies, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, are put out, taken away, and the Spirit of Christ can move in, then by the power of His Spirit, He can give you His wisdom and His discretion, and you can make straight paths through your feet. The territory internally of optimistic confidence used to be occupied by the enemy of fear and of guilt and of anxiety and so on and so forth. And you were unable to see the world through Christ's eyes, believing the promises of God, believing that he's going to lead you to a fruitful place. Fear and guilt and anxiety would occupy that land and wouldn't allow optimistic confidence that the Spirit of God works in. And so the enemy of those things has to be driven out in order for the territory to be subdued and taken by Christ, that he might work his goodness into our lives. You follow? And so there's territory in the Lord that you and I are promised to be given. It's territory that is experienced by us without limitations, but the obstacle of the enemies must also be driven out. And these chapters illustrate for us the process of both the driving out of those enemies and also how, for us, do we obtain the life, the abundant life that Jesus promises to give. We're in chapter 11. In chapter 10 that we looked at last week, Joshua and the children of Israel finished the conquest of the southern portion of the land. If you have your map, you could look right at it and with your eyes just draw a line right through the center and everything that's got color to the south was taken by Joshua in chapter 10. In chapter 11, he's going to take everything now to the north. And it's very brief. There's very little that's even spoken about it. It's seven years of time that passes in, in a very few verses and very little detail is given to us. But it is the northern conquest that we have before us in chapter 11. Now, the first five verses, and we're not going to read them, but you can read them later on your own, describe the alliance of the northern enemies that form against Joshua and the children of Israel. It's a super alliance. All the kings and all the armies of all the people that live on the north half of that land all gather together and make a united front against Joshua and the children of Israel. It's a multitude that the Bible there in verse 4 describes as an innumerable multitude like the sand of the seashore. And then we see in verse 6 what happens. Notice chapter 11, verse 6. It says, But the Lord said to Joshua, after this alliance is made against him, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. 
You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizraphoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses, and he burned their chariots with fire. Now, I know when I first read that, I said, Lord, why did he have to hamstring the horses? I mean, why not take them and add them to the fleet and strengthen your military? And that's the exact reason why God told them to hamstring the horses. What they would do is they would just cut one of the muscles on the back leg, and it would not allow the horse to any longer be used for military or powerful purposes. You could keep it as a pet. It would keep its life. It wouldn't suffer that much, but it could no longer pull a load and carry a burden. And the reason why God told him to do that is because God commanded through Moses that they were not to multiply horses when they came into the land. That is, that they weren't to build up their military might so greatly that they would rely more upon their resources than they would rely upon the Lord. He promised to be their victory, that he was going to help them in their conquest and in the things that they would do. And they weren't to trust in their own ingenuity, their own strength, or the strength of their cachet, if you would, their chariots and their horses. And so God commands Joshua to hamstring these horses, and Joshua obeys. Well, verses 10 now, all the way through 15, summarize the cleanup of this battle as Joshua just goes in now having wiped out all these kings and he burns the one city he cleans up the spoils from the next and then as we pick up in verse 16 we have the closing record of all of the conquest in other words this is kind of the closing paragraph that gives to us the summation and closure for the last couple of chapters the entire battle if you would and so in verse 16 it says this thus Joshua took all this land the mountain country, and all the south. All the land of Goshen, which was way down in the south, almost on the borders of Egypt. The lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands. From Mount Halak and the ascension to Seir, which was Edom on the southeast side, way down at the bottom corner of Reuben, if you're looking at your map. Even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon. And Lebanon is way up in the north if you look at the other extreme of that map. Below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, when you tie together the numbers that are given to us in the Bible, some of them are in chapter 14 when Caleb testifies of his age Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 tells us uh, some things. When you put the verses together, you can clearly deduce that this battle, this whole war, took a period of seven years. And that's going to be significant for a study that we'll do later on in uh, our our studies of Joshua. But when it says that he made war a long time, it was a seven-year war. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Now that's a tough verse for some. 
This phrase shows up occasionally throughout the Bible that it actually says that God hardened their hearts. And he goes on to say that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. What gives with this concept of God hardening their hearts, that it was of the Lord for him to harden their hearts so that they would not receive any mercy? Whenever we see this phrase in the Bible, it's never initiated by God. It's always a response and a reciprocation or a ratification of something that was first decided by men. In other words, God's first choice is always salvation by grace through faith. The Bible says that God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Twice in Ezekiel, God says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or in the death of him that dies. He doesn't rejoice in judgment, but he rejoices in mercy and in truth. And so God always extends an olive branch and gives people an opportunity to turn. But when a person refuses that opportunity and they reject God's plea for salvation, something happens inside. The heart gets a little bit harder. The next time God extends his hand... The precedent has already been set. I I say no to God. I'm not going to give my life to God. And so the invitation comes the second time and you refuse it again. And what happens is your heart gets a little bit harder. The battle is a little bit less inside. So that as God keeps asking, keeps calling, keeps giving you the offer to come to him, to make peace with him, you continue to refuse and it becomes a mark of who you are. No, that's just not who I am. And your heart has become hardened. Well, you hardened your heart. God didn't heart. God's asking you to come to repentance. But here's what happens. Is that there comes a day, and it's the scariest day that could happen in the life of a person, that God ratifies or agrees with or confirms the decision that you made. And then the Bible says that God hardens your heart. And at that point, you can't receive. If you read in Exodus about Pharaoh, who was you know, there in the days when Moses came and said, let my people go. The Bible says that seven times Moses came and said, let my people go. And it says seven times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then Moses came the eighth time and said, let my people go. And God's this time word to him was, or it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it happened six more times. So seven times Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then seven times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But God didn't initiate that. God gave Pharaoh the opportunity, and he showed with clear signs who he was, and he gave Pharaoh the opportunity to go along. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God ratified it. The Canaanites had over 400 years of clear testimony from the time of Abraham until the time of Joshua to to repent and submit themselves to the God of Israel. God gave them 400 years. He left his own people in slavery for most of that time because of the mercy that he was extending to the Canaanites. But their corruption grew, and their Christ rejection stood to a point where God finally said, no, judgment is here, and their hearts are not hardened. And that's the context of this, where it says that God hardened their heart. They had exhausted the mercy of God. Don't be deceived. The mercy of God is very great, but it does have an end. If God's been knocking on your heart, and you've hardened your heart, perhaps you want to rethink the stance that you've made against him. It says in verse 21, And at that time Joshua came and he cut off the Anakim, those are the giants, from the mountains, from Hebron and Debir and Anab. 
And from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod. So, conclusion now, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes, then the land rested from war. So verse 23 is the closing of the conquest, and it's also the introduction to the distribution now of the land, as Joshua's going to divide it and give to each tribe a section that will be called theirs, almost like counties you know, the divisions that are there on the map. But the first point that I want to make, and it really is the point that all of chapter 12 makes, is that the land at this point belongs to Joshua. It says that Joshua took all the land, and now it's up to him to distribute the land to the people. And here's the principle as it applies to you and I. All of the land that we would call the abundant life that Jesus spoke of, that he said he wanted to give to us, all of that land has been conquered and purchased by Jesus. He owns it. Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia, he said, I've set before you an open door, and he called himself the one who holds the keys to death and hell. He holds the keys to every door, and all things belong to him. The Bible says that he's far above all principalities and powers and rulers, that there is nothing that comes even close to the authority that he has. And through his work on the cross, he purchased the rights to everything and everyone that ever existed. And it's his to give. Just as Joshua is to give the land, Jesus gives to you the promises and the life. Chapter 12, what it is, is a list of all 31 kings that were deposed and dethroned. That's all chapter 12 is. And so I just saved you the tediousness of reading and hearing me try to pronounce names that I can't say. And you can go through and you can read the names of those things, but the point of chapter 12 is that the land belongs to Joshua. And the point for you and I is that the abundant life that you're hungry for, that I'm thirsting, it belongs to Jesus. And he says, promises that he will give it, and it's his to give. And that should stir our hope. Because it means it's not up to us to go into the battle and defeat the enemies. The enemies have already been conquered. But it's ours to obtain by the hand of our Joshua, by Jesus. And that's really the first step in in a lot of ways to inheriting the land, is realizing that the battle is the Lord's. I thought for a long time that for me to thrive and be fruitful in the Christian faith, I had to earn my stripes, that I had to prove myself to the Lord in some way. And all I got from that was frustration and fruitlessness. Nothing ever came of it. But happy is the person that comes to realize that it's Jesus who obtains and it's Jesus who gives. But the question is then, who gets it? Who does he give the land to? And how can we obtain it? Because that's what we all want to know, right? I want to live abundantly. I trust that you want to live abundantly. So who gets the land? There's some practical things in the next chapters here that answer that question. As we consider, who got the land for them? Now you have the map. Now I've got to find it. I folded it in here foolishly, probably never to be seen again for 100 years. No, here it is. If you have your map of the, uh, of the promised land, you'll notice a few things as you look on it. First, let me say this, is that I'm doing you a great favor tonight. Because what you have in your hand with this map is one page and one picture that illustrates for you what it takes 
eight or nine chapters to describe with words in the coming decade of chapters in Joshua. In other words, what most of chapters 12 through 19 are in Joshua is just words that describe these allotments. And much of the text of those chapters reads a lot like a surveyor's chart. You ever read one of those? I tried when we bought our house. I wanted to try to figure out exactly where my, my lines were, you know, because they're in the woods. And so I read it, and I was like, 250,000 degrees northwest. And I was like, oh, you know, and that's what it's kind of like reading the division and the borders and where they are. You can do it. You'll understand it and go through it. But basically what it says is what you have right here on this chart. It highlights the division of the tribes to these lands that are here. However, you'll also notice as you look at this paper that not all of the land was divided equally. Some of the tribes have huge, massive amounts of land with many acres, you know, and lots of resources and whatnot. And you'll see that other ones are really, 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 really small and kind of cramped in there. And and they don't really have much. In fact, some of it is in desert wasteland where there's really not many resources at all. And what we discover here is that not everybody got an equal share with equal potential of the land. And I think that there's an application in that. And as we look at some of the small sections of what happens in these chapters, it answers for us the question of who gets the good land? I know that for me, I want the good land. And I trust you want the good land. So who gets the good land? And and those questions are answered in in these chapters. I believe that the first uh, segment or the first one, and if you're taking notes, you could write this down, who gets the good land, is first of all, those that ask. Real simple, right? If the land belongs to Joshua, to Jesus, and he can give it to whom he wills, he gives it to those that ask. Chapter 13 describes for us the borders of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. If you look again at your map and you see the Jordan River dividing right down the middle of the land, and to the right of that, of the Jordan River, you'll see the pink segment at the bottom, which is Reuben, and then the purple segment above that, which is Gad, and then the orange segment above that, which says East Manasseh. Well, chapter 13 just highlights the division of that land right there. And if you notice, that's a large chunk of land. Why did they get that land? Do you know why? Because they asked for it. Now, it's true that that land was not considered Canaan. It was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And thus, it did have some disadvantages to it. It wasn't as easy for them to get to Jerusalem at feast times. It it, it was closer to the enemy borders on the east, you know. So it did have some disadvantages, but it also had some very great advantages. Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were for the most part, agrarian people. They were farmers. And the lands there of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, they were great lands for pasturing, for raising cattle, and for being productive in that agricultural mode. And they recognized that. They said, hey, this land, this territory, matches our gifts, our calling, what we are. And so they went to Moses at the time, and they said, hey, Moses, would you please give us this land? And Moses said, hey, when Joshua divides the land, I'll see to it that he honors that request. And so they asked for it. They got it. The Bible says that God gives to those that ask. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Again, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, a favorite verse of mine, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Remember the first time I ever read those words, my heart just felt like it weighed 10 pounds less inside my heart. To realize that God's not hanging over waiting for me to earn something, but rather it's his delight, it's his desire to give. And he tells us that we can ask. I love what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He doesn't withhold good things from his kids. If God looks at something in your life and he sees that it is genuinely good, he's not going to say, well, I'm going to wait until I see your report card for next year before I make a decision on this one. But if it's something that's good for you, and he sees that your life is ordered and your heart is right with him, he's going to give you the thing that you asked for. That's his desire. It's his MO. It's a good father. It's what he loves to do. James chapter 4, verse 2, explains the reason why often we don't have very much of what we talk about as the abundant life. He says, you have not because you ask not. James chapter 4, verse 2. And so when I see in Scripture... And it doesn't have to be here. It can be anywhere in Scripture that I see somewhere where God gives a promise of something that's good that he desires to bless me with. Then he instructs me to ask for it. And the Bible says that if I ask for it, then I can believe that I'm going to receive it. So why don't people ask? Why did James have to say that? Hey, you have not because you ask not. It's a common problem amongst Christians. We don't pray. We don't ask. So why don't people ask? I think there's a lot of reasons, but three main ones. Number one is because we're afraid he's going to say no. That if I ask God for something and he says no, and sometimes God says no, because it's not the right time or it's not good for us or maybe our heart isn't in the place that it's supposed to be. When, we, when he says no, it humbles us. We say, oh, you know, we have to kind of tuck our tail. And then it causes us to kind of go into this whole self-assessment gig of, Well, am I walking uprightly? Is this good for me? And so sometimes we think, well, rather than hear him say no, I'm just going to hope he knows what I want and hope he just kind of gives it. And then I don't have to hear the no. It's part of the reason why people say no. Or, I mean, don't ask. Number two is because they don't want to wait. They know, we all know, don't we, that sometimes we ask God for things. And, hey, when's the last time you prayed for something and that same minute it just appeared right in front of you? Don't you wish it worked like that? It doesn't, though, does it? (laughs) And oftentimes we have to wait. And so we think, well, if I ask God for this, then I have to be patient and I have to wait. If I figure out how to do it myself, I could probably expedite the process, you know. And so we don't ask. And number three, I think sometimes we don't ask because we really don't believe that God is benevolent and that he wants to give good things to his children. That we doubt, does God really love me enough to care about the simple things that I desire? Or that I might find life in the things that I believe he's created me to find life in. Or we think that maybe he's not willing. We, doubt, we know he's able, but is he willing? Does he want to bless? Does he want to help me? And so oftentimes, we don't ask. You have not because you ask not, but God gives to those that ask. That's why Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh got almost as much land as everyone else combined. Because they asked. 
And I think, well, how simple is that? That we can just ask God, Lord, give me the abundant life. As I read that he wants to fill me with his spirit. Lord, fill, please, I ask you to fill me with your spirit. And all of the things that come along with that, that I might be as Solomon or as Joseph or as Paul, fruitful and productive in my life. God wants to do that for us. Would you ask? The second thing, the second um, group of people that God gives his best to, and it kind of dovetails, right, with those that don't ask, are, well, those that believe. Those that believe God. Those that have faith are those that obtain great things from God. Chapters 14 and 15 deal with the borders of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you look at your map, you'll notice that Judah, in the south of the Canaan land there, has most of the southern portion. The tribe of Judah and the land that they got was absolutely huge. They were kind of, you know, coerced later on to cut off this desert section of it for Simeon because they needed a place for him. But they got the best of this land. And why? Why is that? As we read these chapters, as we look at it, we see that not only was it Judah that had a part to play in this, but it was also a man by the name of Caleb. Do you remember Caleb? you remember when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land to go and check out how things were and, and make a battle plan? And it says that 10 of the spies came back and they gave an evil report and they discouraged the hearts of the people. But two brought a good word. Caleb and Joshua. Joshua and Caleb. I love their initials. J and C. JC, the faithful witness, you know. They brought a good word back. And we look at Caleb's story, and Caleb is a great reason for the inheritance of Judah. Look with me at chapter 14. You can turn there and look at verse 6. It says, Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, and notice that he was a Gentile. The Kenizzites were descendants of Esau, Edomites. They said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Now, don't read right over that, but think about what that says. God spoke to Joshua and Caleb 45 years before this moment. And that is the moment that Joshua is bringing, I mean, Caleb is bringing up to Joshua here. It's a word that God spoke 45 years ago. 45 years ago, God had said to Joshua and Caleb, everyone else is going to die, but you and you are going to go in and you are going to receive the land. And Joshua believed that promise that God gave and he held on to it for 45 years. And 45 years later, now that they're in the land and the battle is over, now Caleb comes to Joshua and he brings it up. He says, you remember what God said to you and what God said to me through Moses concerning this land. Verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he said, these 45 years, since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. 
Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. For it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I will be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. He gets a whole city. Hebron was the cream of the crop. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, the giants. And then the land had uh, rest from war. What is it about Caleb and about Judah, the tribe collectively, that caused God to give them Hebron and the best of the land as he did? According to what we read here, it's nothing more than simple faith. Is that Caleb received a word from God, and Caleb held on to it and believed it, and then he was willing to go and fight, proving his faith, and drive out the Anakin from Hebron that he might obtain it. And so he believed what God said. He was dependent upon God at age 40 and upon age 85. He lived in submission to Joshua. I mean, really, think about that. He was kind of his closest colleague. Yet he doesn't come presumptuously or think that he has any authority, but he comes and he asks Joshua. He comes to him. And thus he obtained and he became an influence to those around him. You see the descendants of Caleb carrying on great exploits even as their father had. And so God honors the faith. And here's the application for you and I. The Bible is very clear that God honors faith. God honors it and we honor God when we choose to believe the things that he has said. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith honors God, and God honors faith. And without it, it's impossible. And when we see a promise in Scripture, or we feel like God is speaking to our hearts, then he calls us to believe it, to have confidence in him, and to hold to it by faith. Mark chapter 9, verse 23 says that if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believe. Faith is a choice that we make. It isn't something that we feel. Well, I just don't feel at this time that it's going to work out. But it's something that we choose. We choose to rest our confidence upon what God has said. He said it. It's recorded in the Word. The Word has proven faithful. God has proven faithful to me throughout the course of my life, and therefore I trust that I can stand upon what He has said, and I believe I'm going to obtain it because God has spoken it. That's faith. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. You can choose to believe tonight, or you can choose to disbelieve. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you make up your mind to believe and do, and we see it lived out in Caleb, and we see that God honored it. They obtained a great portion of the land. Number three people that uh, obtain the land, again for your notes, is those that know the word. Who has the abundant life? Those that know the word. Chapters 16 and 17 of Joshua deal with the tribes that descended from Joseph. You'll remember that Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And when Jacob was dying, he said, Joseph, there's not going to be a tribe of Joseph. There's going to be two tribes. Your sons are going to stand for you. So there will be a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. But there will be no tribe of Joseph. But 16 and 17 deal with those tribes 
Ephraim and Manasseh. And this would be the other half of Manasseh that didn't receive their inheritance in East Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan. But here's what happened to Manasseh. Notice on your map, notice how much territory was given to Manasseh. Do you see that? I mean, if you look between East and West Manasseh, they by far have a majority of the land among all the other tribes. And amazingly, there was nothing special about Manasseh. Messiah didn't come from Manasseh. There was never any great rulers or judges or any exploits done through Manasseh. Nothing monumental ever happened on the lands of Manasseh. They were a very mean, average, ordinary people amongst God's people. And yet they inherited great things. Why is that? Here's why. Because they knew the word. See, as you read chapter 17, the first section of it there, they come into a little bit of a problem when they're dividing the land out to Manasseh because it reaches a point where there's no more males in the lineage of Manasseh to give land to. There's only females. One of the sons, the great-great-grandson of the original Manasseh, he had four daughters, but he had no sons, and they ran into a problem because they didn't give the land to the female names. They would give it to the males. And so the women, they realized, they said, hey, we're going to get ripped off in this. We're not going to get a good deal. We're going to end up with nothing because because we know how things work. And so what they did is they searched the scriptures. And they found in Deuteronomy where Moses made provision for a situation just like this. That when there's no sons and there's an inheritance that's to be given to females, that they are to be given an equal portion as though they were the males so that the name doesn't get cut off. So they take the scripture and they go to Joshua and they say, hey, the word of God says that you have to give to us an equal portion of the men. And so you read a little bit further along in the passage and it says that Manasseh ended up with 10 shares. Other tribes got one share. Manasseh got 10 shares and the reason was because of these women who knew the word of God. The application for you and I is this. Who obtains the promises? Who lives the abundant life? People that know the word of God of God. See, you have to know the promises of God, the word of God, if you're going to clay claim to the land that's there. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us do not have natural advantages. You know, we're very ordinary people. We're not charismatic. We're not super smart. We don't come from money. We haven't had the good fortune of, you know, having circumstances like maybe some other people have. We're just normal, ordinary people. And so we think, well, how could I ever live the kind of abundant life that someone who has so much talent or natural advantage has? How could I do that? Here's what the Bible says. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, and let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knoweth me. 